0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And
1: I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a whole lot more. This week,
0: we bring you highlights from two big events.
1: First up, the Bloomberg Breakaway Summit. That was on Tuesday, and we talked to a bunch of big names, including retired general Stanley McChrystal, and music industry executive turned criminal justice reformer Jason Flom. And
0: on Thursday, we were at Harvard Business School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We spoke to some more big names, many from the world of private equity.
1: Plus, we covered the best stories in Bloomberg Business Week, the magazine, from the G20 dumpster fire to what bird brains can teach, self-driving cars. First up, though, one of the more talked about stories this week at Bloomberg, Facebook's new cryptocurrency, Libra.
0: It was really the talk mm-hmm. of the tech world and, of course, the crypto world. Joe Weisenthal follows that so closely for us. Markets editor, co-host of What'd You Miss? A regular on our daily Bloomberg business. show. Level-headed week when we talk radio about show. cryptocurrency. Yeah, I love yeah, talking to you about this. Yeah. So you've been, as we yeah. alluded to, Following this for a long time, you caught up with the guy who's running uh, all of this.
2: What's your takeaway here? It's incredibly ambitious. If it if it were to work, if it were to gain traction, it could really be, I think, a potential game changer. I'm thinking like a, the closest analogy that I keep thinking of is actually not an existing money, but the Android operating system oh. and Google essentially becoming a de facto platform for so much of the world. And I think that Libra wants to do that essentially for money. And so if you think about all these different networks that exist, payment networks all around the world, they don't talk to each other. They're not interoperable. They want to build the open source monetary operating platform. But the flip side, it's going to be incredibly hard because even if they were to get the execution right, even if they were to get the partners right, Right. even if the product is easy, dealing with financial regulations, which are the most you know, it's probably the most tightly regulated aspect of any industry in any country around the world. And somehow navigating all those different financial regulations and regulatory bodies is going to be so difficult. And I wonder, like, if it'll even get off the ground. All right. Can we go back one step?
0: Help us understand how this would work. What would this look like to me as a Facebook user if I wanted to pay Carol for a Pez dispenser?
2: So the idea is there is going to be this unit of account called the Libra. It'll be a currency and it'll be pegged to a basket of presumably stable currencies around the world. So I would imagine it would be heavily weighted towards the dollar and the euro and the yen and the pound and basically probably the world's most uh, stable currencies. And so in theory, if you wanted to start using this currency, you could you would go to some exchange and there would be uh, regulated exchanges that have to comply with local regulations. And you might put in $100 and you would get some X amount of Libra. And then you could Uh, exchange it. You might do it through the Facebook messaging apps. Mm -hmm. You might, in theory, do it in a contactless payment from your phone. Now, my guess is they don't anticipate very much sort of normal day-to-day use case in in developed countries because, let's be honest, most payment systems work pretty fine, credit cards, Apple Pay, and so forth. But if the two of you are in different countries it's not so easy to just send someone money right Right. now. There's all kinds of uh, tricky aspects. If you wanted to do something even more complicated, say, uh, send someone remittances from a developed uh, economy to an emerging market, it gets even more complicated. If you wanted to set up remittances on a regular basis, or something that automatically takes out part of your paycheck, it gets even more complicated than that. And I think what they want to do is build a platform so that others can build the apps that would make that really easy. But it has
1: to have a consistent value in right. order for it to be worthy yes. of people using it.
2: Yes. And so they're one of the arguments that they make, and I'm not sure if it's totally true, but one of the arguments that they make is that the volatility of existing cryptocurrencies essentially renders them unusable for these kind of purposes, which is why we mostly see them know, used for speculative uh, purposes, a little bit on sort of what would be called black market or the gray market, things you're really not supposed to do under the law, in which <laughs> case you sort of have to accept that volatility risk is yeah. one of the risks you're going to take. So they argue that by this system in which the money, the Libra, is backed by currency held in the bank, that that will essentially make it pretty unvolatile. And mm. I think that's right. That should do a good job of keeping the volatility to a minimum in both the sender and receiver can be roughly certain um, that they know what the value is.
1: Joe, the one thing I think about and go back to what you said earlier about the regulatory oversight that Facebook is already under in terms of its invasion into our digital lives, this would allow them to dig even deeper into that.
2: Absolutely. I mean, that is really the tricky thing. Look, there's no entity in the entire world that has Facebook's breadth and scale. It's so popular as the main source of essentially what is the internet in a... All around the world, no other no other company comes close. So they would probably be the best uh, position to pull off something Mm -hmm. like this. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, that's exactly why people are so skeptical of them. People are worried about their data. People are worried about privacy, and it's why politicians are immediately yeah. There were were
0: tweets. Sherrod Brown, I believe,
2: that senator from Ohio, immediately came out. Maxine Waters says she wants to hold hearings. Uh, We also see it in Europe. I mean, if you think the regulators in the U.S. are going to be tough, I just imagine they're going to be a lot uh, tougher in Europe.
1: I have to say, I've been talking to a lot of financial executives, senior. We both have been. And, you know, these are the companies, though, that they're watching in terms of kind of disrupting the system. Your Facebooks, your Googles, they are watching them or even kind of starting to work with them because of things like this.
2: I think that's exactly right. And even long prior to Facebook, Libra, or before we even knew they were interested in this, people have been talking for years about, What if Amazon were to launch a bank? What if Amazon were to launch a brokerage? Mm -hmm. What if Google? And so this idea that big tech companies are in a strong position to make incursions into financial services has been a source of anxiety for a while. We see with Apple making more moves on payments and cards, that is an avenue in which they've had some success, particularly with Apple Pay. Google is something like that. Um, But it is tricky territory.
0: And that's Joe Weisenthal, an expert in many things. But he's been following the crypto world so closely. We really wanted to get his thoughts on this latest development.
1: And very measured thoughts. And this is why we like his perspective, because folks can get really excited about cryptocurrencies. And Joe kind of brings us back down to earth. From cannabis and rock riffs to neuroscientists and bird brains, it's all in the feature section of the magazine this week.
0: All right, let's bring in Max Chafkin because we want to go inside this. And let's start with bird brains because at first I thought maybe it was a little bit of an insult, but we're actually talking (laughs) about the actual brains of actual birds.
3: Literal bird brains, also mouse brains. Uh, This story has one of the most memorable leads uh, that I've ever read. It it involves a a little mouse um, sitting uh, in front of a screen with a tiny mouse sized joystick and um, the the
1: Uh, okay just stop there let's just all (laughs) revel in that because
3: that's just magical but what's really what's even crazier is uh, he has the top of his head cut open so that the scientists okay not so magical can look at not magical for the mouse maybe magical for science I suppose but the idea is that um, mice and birds um, uh, animals have always been studied by neuroscientists but this science which has kind of been off to the edges of, of sort of like the academic mainstream has gotten very popular because tech companies Mm -hmm. Um, all over the world but especially in Silicon Valley are super interested in understanding how brains work and then applying that to AI and all sorts of other futuristic things.
1: And voice recognition software. Yeah, Why absolutely.
3: Not? Like well so so if if you're trying to make Siri work better, um you know th- this this gets into into complicated stuff, but one of the ways that AI basically tries to 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 figure out how the human brain works and then kind of mimic that in software. So so to the extent that we're able to understand how how humans form connections, you know, in theory I guess, that can help um, software make connections and that allows Siri to understand what you mean when you mumble.
0: Okay. When we were reading this, I think we both had this thought of, okay, this is going to end up in a script of Silicon Valley at some point. Like, it feels <laughs> yeah. very Silicon Valley-ish, you yeah. know, writ large. You're a great chronicler of uh, of the Valley. How does this fit in sort of culturally? Because there's a there's an element of this, I'll be honest, it's like, oh boy, like, here yeah. we go. Well,
3: um, you know, the, this the, the whole idea of sort of ai is has obviously been very hot for for a long time yeah. i mean one of the one of the, i'd say like the the maybe easier to parody uh, pieces of this would be the kind of human brain interface yes. which is something that you know scientists have worked on uh, doctors have worked on because if you were able to create a, a brain interface it might help people who've had amputations right. or who can't say move their limbs they, they might be able to speak um Elon Musk has has this uh, startup uh, that is trying to create, you know, much better human brain computers. And you have lots of people, including Mark Zuckerberg, has sort of talked about, you know, how the how the dream would be to, to communicate without speaking, um, which, you know, I agree. I mean, it, it, it does sound cool and, and it, it it's clear that there would be some amazing implications. But but this this may be. As you, as you kind of hint, this is, could be a case where um, some of these tech guys are
0: a little ahead of their skis. That said, uh, creating lots of jobs for neuroscientists. Right. All right. So from neuroscientists to rock and roll, it's a hard pivot, uh, <laughs> admittedly. But this is a fascinating story. It's a first-person story. There's a cool element online. Tell us about the tale of the rock riff.
3: So, so this story is written by Vernon Silver, who is the foremost uh, uh, Led Zeppelin copyright correspondent. <laughs> uh, Vernon has written a, a couple of memorable stories. Is about a dispute uh, between Led Zeppelin, and I-, I believe the man is called Spirit, uh, over, over, the, uh, over Stairway to Heaven. And while he was reporting this story, he stumbled on kind of a weird little quirk of U.S. copyright law, which is full of these weird quirks, which is that before 1978, a piece of music to have copyright had to have the sheet music filed with the U.S. Copyright Office. And if it didn't, in theory, uh, at least according to some legal interpretations and as I'll explain, Vernon's uh, legal interpretation <laughs> that would mean that lots and lots of guitar solos, which were sort of improvised, where the record label didn't bother to file this what's called a deposit copy with with the government, are basically open season. So Vernon went to the Copyright Office and started pulling all of these sort of well known, iconic like uh, pieces of music, thing, yeah. including from uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Leonard Skinner, um, and and uh, and started putting together this kind of Franken song as kind of a demonstration. <laughs> of of the absurdity of U.S. copyright law. And and as you said, Jason, we have this amazing tool um, on Bloomberg Businessweek's website, which will allow you, the reader, to assemble your own Franken-song with um, a bunch of these uh, apparently public domain riffs.
0: Right, because what he essentially found was this idea that some of the best-known parts of the best-known songs Free game, yeah, exactly, and and this is something that may get worked out in the courts because this Led Zeppelin
3: suit is still playing out, and and. Pieces of it, depending on how it's decided, could could change this again. Because if a judge were to say that if there's a piece of recorded music, right. that could give copyright. But right now, a, a, as we understand it, just having the recorded music is not enough. And this is kind of crazy because you know uh, U.S. copyright law. I mean, it's it's an amazing sort of sort of canon that's allowed for this incredible production of creativity. You know, all, all of Hollywood. I mean, we have you know really robust creative industries but it's also kind of weird and 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 there's this combination of, of of some stuff being unprotected like this and then and then other times where you have these pop songs um that are are you know sued for for millions or tens of millions yeah. of dollars where, where like you as a listener maybe don't Necessarily, hear uh, a, a total similarity. So, so the way I read it is just kind of a, a, a voyage into the absurdity and interestingness of
0: of this weird legal system. Drugs it Has got to be next because, right, because we have
3: neuroscience about, and, and, right, rock, and, and roll. rock and roll. So uh, all <laughs> well, comes together, does it not? Would come next. Yeah. So so the the third story in the feature well is a profile of the CEO of Canopy, which is um, one of these uh, Canadian cannabis companies that that in this moment where suddenly you have a lot of businesses getting really excited about legalization. You know, investors are. Are, are are psyched and, and it, it feels like a, a growth business. And this could be, you know, one of the new drug moguls, right? It's
1: a $14 billion company. Revenues are a lot less than that at this point. And there's still all these regulatory hurdles, certainly here in the United States to overcome. Yes. he And he is also, uh, you know, a very colorful guy and also a- Obsessed with his couch a little bit or uh, not
3: obsessed? He, <laughs> he, and he also is very adamant that, that we not, you know, giggle at, at cannabis, you, we we don't want to use any of the slurs. He he wants he's trying to bring this um, industry into the mainstream, and that means not you know not calling no puns, right? None of all the, the the terms we might have giggled at
0: you know when we were in high school. And he was named uh, to the Bloomberg 50 last year, and it feels like he certainly earned that designation given uh, what his ambition is. So
3: yeah, I mean one one thing that's interesting about these companies is is they're kind of operating obviously in the in the edges, the margins of business, and, and the gray areas, and you sort of want wonder um, you know Canada for some reason has become this hotbed of, of cannabis and you wonder in the long run if the u.s. Um, you know fully legalizes whether these big American, Uh, Drug companies or tobacco companies might eventually elbow this guy out. Or if this is a situation where the guys who get there first are the
0: ones who who become the leaders.
1: That's Max Chafkin, editor of the Features section. So many fun stories from cannabis and rock riffs to neuroscientists and bird brains.
0: Totally. You never really know what you're going to get all over the place in a very good way. Call it cannabis. Don't call it pot.
1: Not at all. June is Pride Month, celebrating the LGBTQ community, all sexual orientations and genders, and a special section of the magazine this week is really devoted to that, looking at it from a lot of different angles.
0: It is. It's a really fascinating read. Jim Ellis put it all together. He's here with us in New York. So, Jim, tell us— the editorial ethos
4: here, how did this all get started? Well, it was, it was a little unusual. Um, I was going through the mail and I uh, came to my Walmart circular at my weekend place and I saw all of a sudden Ellen and people in rainbow you know, shirts and throwing you know, sort of glitter in the air. And I said, is this Walmart? Did yeah. I sort of stumble on something? And it made me think that, you know, there's a change here. We all, all obviously know society's changed, but business has changed. And when we started of get America's largest retailer that is pretty mainstream in middle America – And suddenly it's got rainbows and unicorns and a 61 year old lesbian running around doing a new line for them. Yeah. And we thought, okay, let's take a look at just how much it's changed. That sort of turned itself into a whole section of stories, not just what's, you know, how Ellen met Walmart. Right. But also, you know, the changes that are happening overseas. And then we also wanted to take a look at some of the negative side of that, Mm -hmm. which is there's a lot of legal challenges right now to, employment issues that deal with lgbt and so we thought put it all together into a package it's the 50th anniversary of stonewall Mm -hmm. it's pride month and all of a sudden it came to be
1: I feel like the Ellen story alone if you think about well known right in the Hollywood community had her own series she came out as a gay character and as a gay person in real life and she really took a turn for the worst people didn't accept her and it took her a long time long to, time come, to back. come back and as you mentioned now here she is with Walmart the world's yeah.
4: largest retailer but this is a big change from yeah. 22 years ago you know she came out in 97 in this uh, you know cover story in time and all of a sudden you know her show which was on TV suddenly you know, a year later, canceled. You know, she can't get work for three years. I right. I mean, she didn't get work at the end for, as, a, as a big sponsor for anybody until Amex in 2004. Right. And, you know, it was a long struggle because America sort of had a long struggle with this notion of sort of incorporating LGBT into the mainstream. Mm. But – and Walmart as well had a long struggle with this. Walmart is not the sort of – you know, this isn't Target. Right. You know. Walmart sort of went through and sort of had a deal with the uh, National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce back in 2000, I guess 2005. And so many of its employees and conservative groups, you know, griped about it that they then dumped that and said, we'll no longer get involved in things that are controversial. And, you know, they didn't uh, support all the large corporations that pushed for, um, you know, amicus things at the court to Mm -hmm. get gay marriage approved. They sort of set out a lot of things. But now – America has changed and Walmart follows. And part of the reason they were able to
0: do that is Ellen, and you guys go through the numbers, is insanely popular. She's
4: insanely popular. I mean, she's on. TV every day. Actually, right, one day she's on twice a day. Mm-hmm. I mean, she um, you know, but she also has shown herself to be a very good person for brands. Yes, I mean, she's had deals with other retailers. She had to deal with pennies. She um has a, a homeware a housewares line that sells in Macy's and Nordstrom. I mean, she is one of those things that now sort of transcends sort of her, you know, sort of individual sort yes. of background. She is brand in and of herself. She's the Oprah of today and in that sense I mean she's like as family friendly as you can get
0: right Okay. Well, and and speaking of Hollywood, I mean, it's interesting to see what has happened and in some cases hasn't happened right. in Hollywood in those intervening years. And you guys, Anusha Sukui, uh, digs into that
4: as right. well. I mean, be, people sort of know that, you know, they always think Hollywood is always on the cutting edge. Right. Hollywood isn't always on the cutting edge. We did a really interesting look at, you know, if you looked at, you know, the top 100 films and you looked at where, you know, gay characters and sort of our LGBT characters or Q characters, They're they're – almost non-existent in major roles I mean it just doesn't happen that much so there's not a lot of risk taking when it comes to that in mainstream sort of films and so what we're seeing much more of is in television Mm -hmm. is that people are taking risks and and so we took a look at um, you know FX's uh, you know, Pose series, which is heavy on trans, which mm-hmm. is something that five years ago you would have never thought. I mean, it was like shocking when things like the Crying Game were out. Right, and this yeah. is now. Oh, it's it's something that people talk about. Something that people don't blanch about. You know, sort of pursuing in Hollywood.
1: Right, and you think about the digital services, like, you know, Billions, I think about, right, with their gender-neutral yeah. character. I mean, it's really gotten a lot of attention, and, but, you know, it's kind of an educational process. But as it's still
4: sort of a sales thing, particularly yeah. in film, it, and a lot of people worry about their careers being tagged that way, and um, I would have thought that would have passed, but we were wrong. In right. a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's a similar transition that, went, hap- that happened in the boardroom. And that's Jim Ellis. He oversaw the special takeover of the business
0: section. My favorite part of that, Mm -hmm. how it all got started, just looking at a Walmart circular.
1: Isn't that amazing how that really just spurred a series of stories? Plus we really recommend that you read former BP CEO, Lord John Broad. He gave us an interview and he talked about corporate life in the closet. Fascinating interview.
0: A really compelling Mm -hmm. story, very personal and even emotional at times.
1: So I feel like we need some good old time Western OK Chorale music to kick off this next segment because the world is getting ready for a high stakes showdown between President Donald Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping. It all goes down at the G20. It goes down and it is all
0: about trade ultimately and what's going to happen between these two superpowers. Sean Donnan has been tracking this so closely for us. In fact, he was just recently Mm -hmm. over in China. He's the perfect person to set the table. He joins us from Washington, D.C. So, Sean... The meeting is finally upon us. Will they, won't they get together? Feels like they'll at least get to talk. But tell us what to expect when everybody gets to Osaka.
5: So first of all, I think uh, us reporters who get sent to these G20 uh, summits really owe a debt of gratitude to President Trump. He really has managed, if nothing else, to turn uh, these summits uh, from these kind of snooze fests and very (laughs) earnest negotiations uh, where everyone's kind of biting their nails, waiting for the communique uh, and trying to dissect all that language into into a pretty spicy affair, right? Uh, At the very least, he's kind of given us uh, this twin set of, uh, of, uh, of of things that, that that we didn't have before, and that's kind of uncertainty uh, and consequences. Uh, that's not something G20 summits were known for beforehand. I mean, this is a big deal. This is the leader of the world's two largest economies. are going to sit down. They're going to try and hash out their differences. Uh, the striking thing here is we really don't know how this is going to go. There's, there's a possibility, uh, really a kind of best-case scenario, that the two agree to a bit of a truce. Uh, And some more talks. I think no one thinks we're going to get a a big, grand deal here. Uh, But there's also, and this is not a a small possibility, uh, that the two leaders meet, that they don't agree on anything, uh, and that we go into what really is starting to look like a a possible all-out economic war between the world's two leading economies. That's... a pretty big deal.
1: And I want to talk a bit more about this, but I love this line in your story. You said President Trump also has the trade gun barrels aimed at the EU and Japan. These are two allies he has threatened with auto tariffs, not to mention his public foaming about both Eurozone and Chinese monetary policy. Talk about setting the table here, right? We've seen a bunch of tweets this past week. Um, He's really kind of aiming at so many different people going into this meeting.
5: Yeah. I, I mean, I tried to sit down and, and count how many of, of the G20 uh, Donald Trump was in a possible trade war with. And <laughs> I came up with seven or eight. Wow. Uh, There's also India and Mexico. Obviously, we've seen uh, you know, that that tariff stre- threat is still there uh, in terms of the immigration agreement uh, with Mexico. He, the president said if after 45 days he doesn't see any progress, uh, he'll go ahead there. Uh, India uh, just last weekend slapped some retaliatory tariffs on the US. After Trump uh, decided to take them off a preferential uh, a trade list that they've been on for a, for a long, long time, uh, but the big uh, deal b- besides China that's hanging kind of over the horizon uh, is this threat of auto tariffs. And uh, uh, the president has already uh, ruled that imported cars, i.e., your Subarus and BMWs, are a threat to U.S. national security. Uh, and the question now is, what is he going to do about it? And uh, he He's minded, and we keep hearing this from people inside the White House and around the White House, uh, he really likes the idea of of hitting the EU and Japan with tariffs, which is something that no one in the auto industry, it should be said, likes, and no one really outside of the U.S. thinks would be a good idea uh, for the global economy. I mean, we're already seeing global growth slowing, uh, and all of these mm. kind of gun barrels he's got aimed everywhere are, right. are only yeah. contributing to the uncertainty and, and helping to put a damper on growth.
0: Well, and Sean, I feel like you were one of the first people who who told us or described this as, you know, essentially weaponizing trade in in many ways. This is happening against the backdrop, we should point out, of the President of the United States, you know, re-upping, wanting to get another four years in the White House. This week he was also launching that down uh, in Florida. This is a key political talking point, which I have to think informs the way he's going to Osaka.
5: Yeah, it's not just weaponizing trade anymore either. This isn't just about tariffs. I mean, if you look at his comments this week about the European Central Bank and Mm -hmm. and Mario Draghi's – Basically, Mario Draghi laying out the the case for further stimulus to try and, and help uh, uh, boost the European economy, which looks like it's slowing down. Uh, you know, you're talking about weaponizing monetary policy. Yeah. You're talking about right. uh, you know weaponizing the dollar. Uh, his his main complaint is is, is about the euro. There, uh, he, Donald Trump has this has this conception that he's uh, that, that he's grabbed that uh, national security is about more simply than the weapons of war, that it's about economic security. Uh, And he's used that as a justification for his tariffs on steel and aluminum. It's also, as we said, what he is looking at uh, in terms of autos. Uh, The administration has looked at some other sectors that it might hit uh, with national security tariffs. Uh, We've got export controls coming, uh, a new definition of what emerging technologies uh, the US should limit the exports of. You've seen how uh, the Trump administration has gone after Huawei. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, uh, Trump has weaponized the American economy.
1: Well, and Sean, let's talk about not only President Trump and what he has been doing, but Vice President uh, Mike Pence. He has been very clear in his stance when it comes to China. We're going to get a clue maybe of what kind of policy or kind of conclusion or meeting we might get between Xi and Trump come G20 on Monday. Right. Mike Pence is giving a speech.
5: Yeah. So this is, a, this is a really interesting backstory to, to this. Mike Pence last year gave a, uh, a, a speech that was seen as laying out this kind of Cold War vision of the relationship uh, with China that was really noticed in Beijing. Uh, and that was the first time people, folks in Beijing were going, ah, this trade war isn't just about trade. It's about a broader uh, economic conflict. It's about technology. It's about the South China Sea uh, and, and and so on. He had been, uh, Mike Pence, had been scheduled to, to give a kind of repeat performance on June 4th, which was the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Uh, that would have been incredibly provocative. At the last minute, we're told, uh, President Trump and some other folks around him decided that wasn't a good idea because they did want to keep the door open to sitting down with Xi Jinping at the, at, at the G20. So they rescheduled that to, to June 24th. But now you have just a few days before this meeting in Osaka... Uh, the possibility that the vice president, who really has been one of the most articulate uh, China hawks in the administration, uh, laying out a, a, another uh, attack on, on on China and on the U.S. relationship uh, with China, mm-hmm. that in itself could cause Xi Jinping to recoil and potentially even uh, say, "Hey, hang on a second, this isn't a meeting I'm ready to have."
0: Hmm. So, Sean, flip this around for us. You spent some time recently in China. How is President 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 Xi and his team, how are they preparing and what do you expect them to come to the table with, come to those meetings with once they get to Japan?
5: Uh, that, that's a really good question. I, I think the one sense that I left China with, and I spent 10 days on the ground there uh, seeing officials, former officials, folks at think tanks, businesses, some venture capitalists uh, as well, the, the one sense you really got was of a nation that was preparing for a longer term conflict. Uh, they didn't think this trade war was going to wrap up uh time soon. So I think you, you need to take that context uh, when, and apply it to the G20 meeting. I don't think the Chinese are going to come with very much, uh, and I don't think they're going to come with the kind of capitulation that the U.S. side has been pushing for, uh, and they keep articulating a, a, a set of their own demands. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to see uh, a, a steadier uh, set of demands from from the United States. They want to see tariffs go away. Uh, they're frustrated a little bit with how the administration, or how they see uh, Uh, President Trump is kind of constantly shifting the goalposts
1: so and I do also wonder you know what wins out when it comes to President Xi there's a lot of pressure right we are seeing some weakness certainly in the Chinese economy so you've got that going on but you also do have President Trump publicly saying that he's got President Xi over a barrel (laughs) like you think about the importance of saving face to your home front so I do wonder those are interesting forces at play here
5: yeah, that, that's been a question throughout uh, this trade war in terms of Trump's tactics. Uh, he's got this kind of punch him in the nose approach to to, to negotiation. He, he believes in raising leverage and, and uh, unsettling or, or destabilizing his opponents. Uh, he likes being unpredictable. Uh, those are all the sorts of things that the Chinese have, have told U.S. officials for a long time that they don't believe are constructive uh, in terms of dealing with a, with uh, with China. Simply because uh, you have to recognize that Xi Jinping, like other Chinese leaders, has his own domestic politics. He's got his own hawks at home uh, who are calling for him to stay strong and, and not uh, surrender to, to, to any foreign interference. That is, of course, a big uh, theme right. that... that resonates throughout Chinese history, going back to the opium wars uh, and, and and so on. So he's under a lot of pressure not to surrender. Right. Uh, and he's got, he's got a tough balancing act himself.
1: That's Sean Donnan. And you know, Jason, he's our go-to guy when it has to do anything with global trade. His perspective, having been on the ground in China for, what, a week and a half. So he's got the U.S. perspective, but now he has the Chinese perspective. And it's great insight as we get ready for the G20.
0: Got to understand this from all angles, for sure. Tuesday, was the Bloomberg Breakaway Summit, hosted by Carol Masser. And Carol, you had a chance to catch up with Jason Flom.
1: So some people need no introduction, but I'm going to give him a little bit of an introduction because I was kind of blown away um, reading about this individual. He's been the CEO of three of the largest record companies, CEO of Lava Records, still are, yeah. uh, and Lava Music Publishing, Chairman and CEO of Atlantic Records, Virgin Records, Capital Music Group, He's personally responsible for launching acts such as Kid Rock, Katy Perry, and Lord. The New Yorker calling him one of the most successful record men of the past 20 years. That's the official bio.
6: Yeah, right. <laughs>
1: um, I checked out some of the things that you've done online. You describe yourself as someone who's gone from being a drug-addicted college dropout to being leader in the criminal justice reform movement. That's yeah. quite a leap.
6: Yeah, well, I usually start my speeches by saying this is the story of my crazy journey from want to be Jimi Hendrix to chairman and CEO of three of the biggest record companies in the world, but more importantly, from being a drug-addicted college dropout to a pioneer in the field of criminal justice reform. So it has been a very interesting journey. Yeah.
1: So you go to mom and dad and you say, I want a career in, in, in business. And I know you've talked about your mom graduated Cornell. My at mom graduated, my
6: graduated Cornell when she was 18, which she used to remind me of about three times a week. You know,
1: um, so, and, your, and your dad's this legendary attorney, and you say, I want to do music.
6: Right. So I didn't want to go to college. So my dad comes to my room one day, which was exciting because I didn't even know he knew where my room was because he was always at the office. So he comes to my room one day and he says, I got a deal for you, kid. I go, what's that, dad? He says, you got a year to become a rock star. Otherwise, you got to go to college. I was like, great, dad. I don't even need a whole year. This is awesome, right? I can do this. He goes back and tells my mom. My mom, who had never cursed before in her life until that day, says, if he's going to live in my house, he's got to work or go to school. So my dad, arguably the greatest negotiator of the 20th century, had to come back to my room. So anyway, he made some calls. He called Arthur Lyman. Arthur knew uh, Steve Ross. They got me an interview at Warner Communications. I walked in high as a kite. Sat down, and flumped down in the chair, and they said, you're going to work at Atlantic Records. They gave me a staple gun, some double-sided tape, a roll of Led Zeppelin posters, and a ladder. And off I went to record stores, putting up posters and record stores. I fell in love with the business.
1: And you loved it. I loved it. And you wanted to do more.
6: Well, my dad told me when I was a kid, he, said, he told me and my brother, he said, do whatever you want to do. Try to be the best at it, but just make the world a better place. He said, that's the only definition of success that matters. I've passed that on to my kids as well. And so... I knew I was never going to be the best guitar player. At this point, it was clear. The new first Van Halen record just came out. I was like, I might as well try to dunk a basketball with my three-inch Jewish vertical leap. So <laughs> I said, this practicing is not working for me, but I could become the best at, at this. I could discover other artists. And I thought my taste, you know, everyone thinks their taste in music is great. Face it, right. you do. You all think you know what's best. And so...
1: But what made you think that you had something in, in it that you could go out and find artists? Chutzpah. Chutzpah. You know, yeah,
6: just chutzpah. <laughs> Yeah, classic Jewish chutzpah. But um, I loved music, and I wanted to be a part of it. And once I knew I couldn't be a rock star, I wanted to be involved.
1: Well, something you said, and I recommend everybody watch um, something that Jason did with the Nantucket Project. It's 28 minutes, 52 seconds, and it will make you want to do something. Um, But you said in that, you explain what luck really is. And you say it's preparation plus skill plus perseverance. You've got to have perseverance.
6: Right. Well, that's my thing. And, you know, uh, prepar- everyone knows the old adage, preparation plus skill equals luck. I think it's preparation plus skill plus perseverance equals luck, because I'm sure many of you or all of you had had that experience, too. When you had your first great idea, everyone who was supposed to know better told you you're a schmuck, you're an idiot. That doesn't make any sense. It's not going to work. Right. And then you had to, like, keep knocking on the door and keep banging and, and, until you finally, you know, convinced whoever it was, the decision maker, that you were right, or else you left and went and did it yourself or whatever it is. Because at the end of the day, if you don't, and, and my dad taught me that too. He taught me everything. Um, you know, you have to keep banging on that door until it opens because it doesn't just open for you.
1: So your first band, Zebra,
6: right, was a hit. Yeah.
1: Um, Amit Erdogan, talk to us about him. Because anybody who knows anything about the music industry, this guy is a legend.
6: Yeah, Ahmed Erdogan was the founder of Atlantic Records. Right. legendary son of Turkish uh, ambassador Great and. Story. Just an amazing erudite, incredible guy. signed everybody from Ray Charles, to the Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Mentor for you, sponsor for you. What yes, was he?
6: All of the above. I mean uh, I, you know, he's sort of uh, I mean he was, a, he was just a mythical character. It was amazing. And I'll never forget the first time I, when I finally got my job doing a and r right, which is artist and repertoire, which means as a talent scout at Atlantic Records. When I first got my job, you know, 20,000 bucks, they gave me a raise to 20,000 bucks. I was like, this is incredible. Now I get paid to listen to music. And I remember the drummer from my high school band was at my office, and we were listening to music, smoking weed, and going, this is incredible. I get paid to listen to music, right? And there's a knock on the door, at a tiny little office, and it was Ahmet's secretary. They called him secretaries back then, assistants. Sorry for the political incorrectness. So her name was Jenny Lynn. She rocks on the door. She, she pokes her head in, and now I'm freshly stoned, and she goes... Ahmed would like to see you. And I was like, whoa, (laughs) give me some visine. I was scrambling. And it was a crazy thing. And that was the first time I actually spent time with him in his office. But he, I mean, he was. What did he say to you? It was crazy. He had this guy in his office who looked like he was, uh, lived on the streets. And he was, he smelled bad. He was dirty. And he was pulling cigarette butts out of the ashtray and relighting them. But this guy, Ahmed, had met at a club. And he had some new kind of music that Ahmed thought was cool. And he wanted my opinion on it. The whole thing was just a very trippy, surreal experience. So figured out what happened to that guy.
1: That's Jason Flom. And this is a guy who has run three of the biggest music labels that are out there. He's all about criminal justice reform. And he's helping folks who don't have a voice have one. He's got his own podcast that uh, talks about these stories.
0: Also got a children's book. That was a must read at our house. (laughs) All right.
1: On Tuesday, I hosted the Bloomberg Breakaway Summit. Now, one of the folks I caught up with was... Retired four-star general, Stanley McChrystal. And we spoke about many things, uh, Jason, national security, technology, and also his own personal crisis the day his career literally came to an end in about 24 hours.
0: Amazing. It was a riveting interview. I was so impressed with how direct he was and candidly, how candid he was about that fateful day.
1: I want to talk about a time you were kicked in your butt a little bit. And I know you, once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I know you've talked about this before, and this was after a Rolling Stone article in 2010, and it talked about you and your military strategy yeah. in Afghanistan. The title was The Runaway General, <laughs> and it talked about you and your staff having mocked some of the civilian government yeah. officials. You are a well-respected leader, powerful, high visibility, and now you are part of the 24-hour news cycle. Yeah. What is that like?
7: Disorienting. And what had happened for background, this was a freelance writer who wrote a piece for Rolling Stone. He came in a couple of times, wasn't embedded with us for a long time. We thought it was going to be a puff piece. We thought it was going to be about the command group at war. We'd been together for many of us, many years. And then when the story came out, it came out at two in the morning. We saw it. And it's titled The Runaway General. And as soon as you see that, you know, you don't have to read further. You know you got a problem. <laughs> and there had been tension between Defense Department and the White House. Right not personal. I got along very well with President Obama, but there was this tension over the strategy. So this thing explodes and I'm in Afghanistan. And as soon as it came out, I knew big problem, made some phone calls. And then I was asked to fly back to the United States that night to speak to the secretary of defense, the president. And I absolutely know what's going, but still, as I get on the plane for the 17 hour flight, my 86 year old father, down in Florida, I know he's seeing the news cycle every day. People who don't know what's going on are opining in a, yeah. you know, on the media about it. My son in college is seeing it. And, of course, my wife at that point of 34 years is, uh, is seeing it. As we're flying back, 17-hour flight, I get this email from three privates. Three privates don't normally write the four-star general. How'd how they get them. your email? I don't know. Right. <laughs> and it was funny because I'd met them. I'd gone on an operation with them outside of Kandahar, a combat operation. And so we had this special relationship. Yeah. And they sent me this thing and they said, We heard about this article. And if you let that reporter around and, and those things were said, we don't think that was very smart. Mm. Here I am reading this email going, Whoa. And then they go, However, General, we know you and we love you. So whatever happens, remember that. And you get that from three privates. And you land in D.C. and you go to see the President of the United States. He asks what's going on. What happened? And I didn't know. I mean, I didn't have the background at that point. I just knew there was this conflagration.
1: Had you read the article by this time? Yes.
7: Okay. And I didn't think the article was accurate. I didn't think it depicted it fairly. But that didn't matter. The President on his desk has this problem that came from my team and it's my responsibility. It's not his. So I had prepared my resignation, and I offered it to President Obama. And I said, if you want me to go back and keep commanding, I'll do that. You know, if you want to give me a dressing down and do that, I'll do that. If you want my resignation, whatever's best for the mission. And he took it. And he was an incredible gentleman. He says, I'm going to accept it. Boom, boom, boom. President Obama. Yes. And so we had a short conversation. But here's the point. I walked out of that room. I'd been four years at West Point. I'd been born in an army hospital. Everything in my life had been military. Then I'd been 34 years as an officer, and in an instant, it's done. It's gone. And I walk out into this other office, and then I get in a vehicle and drive back to Fort McNair, uh, where my wife was living when I was in uh, Afghanistan. And literally, everything I was about and who I was is past. not only passed, my wife had grown up in an Army family. And so she had been connected and loyal to me for all these years. And I walked into the uh, house. And she didn't know what was going to happen. I'd flown in that night, and you know, so we hadn't had a chance to talk about it. And she's standing in the entranceway of the house. And I said, Annie, it's over. Career's over. And she looked at me and she said, good.
1: I like Annie.
7: And then she said, We've always been happy and we'll always be happy. And you know, it was the most amazing thing. It was the best piece of leadership I've ever seen in my life because if she had pulled me aside and said, You got screwed, boom, 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 you know, part of me inside wanted to, to, you know, rage and whatnot. And she goes, Uh uh, we'll always be happy. We made a decision that day. We didn't sit down and say it, we just made it unconsciously and then lived it. What we decided is, To Live Life Facing Forward, because I had screwed that up. I accepted responsibility. That was my mistake for that article to come out. And I thought that I was disgraced. And everybody in the world, every time I went anywhere, people would see across the room and they'd kind of point and whisper to themselves and you think, ah, they're talking about Wikipedia
1: or any any article.
7: Yeah, it just, (laughs) that's it. It's there. And... So you want to scream out and say I was wronged or, or whatever you want to do. And We decided differently. What we decided was we wouldn't try to relitigate that. We would just move forward. And I describe it as helped by Annie because she lives life like she drives with no use for the rearview mirror. <laughs> and so what we...
1: Is that a knock on women driving? <laughs> no. All right, just a second.
7: <laughs> Hope she's not listening. But anyway, um, so what we did was we decided that I would conduct myself, and she as well, in a way that everyone who'd never met us before but had read the article would say, wow, that person doesn't seem like that. Doesn't make sense. Or the people who had believed in us before would keep believing, would believe that, hey, I did the right thing to be friends or connected with him for so long. And, you know, it turned out to be the the best decision of my life because You can go back and fight those kind of battles, but nobody cares but you. And second, it's about the future. You can't change anything in the past. Everybody in this room will probably fail. You'll fail at a marriage or you fail with a kid, you in business. you're gonna fail at something. And then you're gonna to have to figure out how you deal with it. And for me, the greatest thing in the world has been focusing forward because it's now been nine years this month and every year has been better. I mean, there were times when I still, you know, I read something or somebody refers to it and I just go, that's not right. But I just, it gets easier every year. And I just think mentally, psychologically, you know, all the things has made me stronger for the experience.
1: That's retired four-star General Stanley McChrystal. For my full interview with the General, check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast, available wherever you download your podcast.
0: So this week, Carol, we found ourselves in Boston at Harvard Business School.
1: Right. It's one of the top-ranked schools by Bloomberg Business Week magazine. We caught up with John Connaughton. He's the co-managing partner at Bain Capital. He's also a Harvard Business School alum. Take us back to your time here uh, at HBS.
8: It's 25 years ago, I guess, you know, you, you forget a lot from 25 years ago, but you don't, you don't forget HBS. Um, I remember uh, in the very first class I had, I was amazed at the global diversity. I mean, this is 25 years ago. Um, and I was in a class with uh, people from Korea and China and in Africa and, and, of course, Europe and Japan. And, and so I was just amazed at the fact that they could attract these type of people um, from all over uh, to sort of get an education all together in the same spot. Um, where I learned from their experiences, which were quite different than mine, uh, having grown up here in the U.S.
1: And I always think about something, John, like those, those educational experiences like the one you had here, you know, what, what stays with you or how it shaped kind of where you are 25 years later?
8: You know, it's, it's funny because, you know, Harvard has a very specific way of doing things. Um, they try to take all of their cases, and they're the case approach, right, right. Um, and everything is from the prism of a leader, Uh, Here I am 26 years old, I'm not a leader, or at least I didn't think of myself as a leader. Um, But those cases that you do over and over again every day in all these different environments, in all these different types of uh, operations, strategy, uh, globalization, all these things that we did, um, we had to become a leader every day in that classroom with 89 other classmates looking at you, challenging you. Um, And that that ability to to be able to, to think on your feet uh, to be able to take a position, to have a voice, to have a point of view, to back it up with facts. I think those types of skills are incredibly important in the in the business world as a leader today for me, and, and it stayed with me for the entire time. It's interesting you say that. We
0: caught up yesterday with Tony James over at mm-hmm. Blackstone, and, and the way he said it is, you got to learn to hold your own,
9: you know, <laughs> and he was,
0: about, you know, he was about your age when, when he came uh, through as well. You know, came, he came right out of uh, undergrad. And so it's a maturing uh, for sure. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the world that we're living in uh, right now, because it is a, an interesting one to say the least you're a global investor. Uh, you see all sorts of crosswinds, I would imagine. As you look around a week that we hear from the Fed, we're looking ahead to, to the G20. How did geopolitics figure into your investment
8: thesis right now? Well, it's, it's complicated. I mean, I think the, the level of disruption that, that might arise by virtue of the direction of, of different sovereign nations about what they intend to do to protect IP, the trade war, of course, is, is on everybody's minds. Um, the element of, of the overall economic policies of, of what is going to happen with central banks, you know, these were fairly stable over the 30 year career I've had in private equity, but they're they're pretty complicated today. And and, uh, frankly, the valuations that we've seen haven't really incorporated some of that complication. Why Um, is
1: that? Is it because there's a lot of money out there, John? I think there's a
8: ton of money and there's a lot of hope. Um, And I think generally, you know, even back when I started in private equity in 1989, people talked about the fear of what was going to transpire, but it takes a while before that really to take take hold and get reset in valuations. So it wasn't until 1991 where we really saw a recession. We really saw uh, the downturn that it actually uh, began to uh, to be realized in valuation, um, we saw it in pockets. China, first right. quarter of 2018, uh, we saw it obviously in the fourth quarter last year as well in in the U.S. Uh, and the rest of the global market. So it's out there.
1: Was that a valuation? Everybody saying, okay, things are overdone, or was it a miscue by the Fed, or was it? What was it?
8: I think there's a lot of short-term orientation okay. to it, but there's enough fear out there. We're 10 years in to the to the cycle, and. And certainly there are these disruptive factors that are out there. Um, So I do think that people do have fear. So when they hear some things that are disruptive, Mm. um, I think valuations get reset pretty quickly. And so
0: with that backdrop, are you sitting around with your partners and saying, you know what, we may need to lean into selling things uh, right now or to continue
8: to sell things? Where's the balance there? Well, first of all, I I believe that the valuations peaked, uh, certainly in the private markets a couple of years ago, um, because the rates have come up to some degree, um, in the U.S. at least. Um, And I do think that the industrial cycle, particularly in auto, for instance, in certain areas of industrials has reset. Um, And certainly with uh, the public market uh, reset valuations for for industrials, we're seeing that in the private markets as well. Hmm. Um, So we're seeing a great deal of industrial pipeline that's coming in to, to, to evaluate. Uh, but it's also tricky because you know, there will be a cycle during our investment horizon. So you need to build that into your investment thesis.
1: Where are you guys finding opportunities? I know you just did it, was it like a nine hundred second a second fund for life sciences? And I know that's something you look at very closely.
8: Yeah, healthcare is a big area for know, us. Uh, we invest early stage, we invest late stage, uh, we invest through our credit funds, and so healthcare has always been a big, big part of our of our strategy. But actually healthcare itself. In each of our verticals, we're going deeper and deeper. So life science is an example. We want to be not just a a biotech early stage investor, we want to be in the inflection capital business. So we did this strategic relationship with with Pfizer where we took their entire CNS platform, carved it out, put it into a new company, and now we're building a company with Pfizer that's gonna be a leading CNS player. You don't see biotech venture capitalists do that. You don't see private equity traditionally do that, but because we're so deep in life sciences, we have those capabilities to do late-stage inflection capital for life Appreciate sciences the of knowledge. and scale of capital. And that was John
0: Conanton, co-managing partner at Bain. So important to get the perspective of these guys who yes. are managing loads of money and having to make decisions in a very fraught economic environment. So this week, we had a special broadcast from Harvard Business School. We got a chance to sit down, a rare sit down, we should say, with Jonathan Nelson. He's the CEO and founder of Providence Equity Partners.
1: You know, in this world where I think people are questioning um, the values of various individuals, whether it's political leaders, whether it's corporate leaders, tell us about those values and how um, Jonathan it's, it's impacted your investment strategy.
9: Oh gosh, well, um, it's probably never uh, been a good business strategy to talk about politics, but you are <laughs> asking in part. I'm and, just saying and, at
1: large. <laughs> yeah. No. Well,
9: no, but there is a, there are some serious issues yeah, embedded there are. here because. Um, Uh, CEOs and their boards are wondering, uh, and and by the way, I think justifiably so, how do they fit in um, as uh, leaders, influencers? And, you know, we have political leaders, uh, which without being partisan is um, tending to more divisive than uniting, and that's troublesome. Um, There are other forms of leadership, it could be faith-based for some, it could, there are plenty of uh, worthy social causes. We are, And then companies are figuring out their own path. You see some very large companies that are actually taking positions um, mm-hmm. on important issues. Problematic, these are not e- easy for big companies. Many of them ha- are on the defensive so that it's hard, uh, particularly in the areas with media and, and uh, technology and communications education, it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, tricky. Um, and then I think the vast majority of CEOs are doing it quietly. They are making their mark. They're doing it uh, in their companies and in how they spend their time out. Um, that's the model that I subscribe to. I'm proud of the work of our portfolio companies uh, and my partners. We are fortunate that in, uh, in the media business, where we focus and have for mm-hmm. 30 years. Actually, this is our 30th anniversary, um, that we have a chance to convene people to um, get a message out. Uh, we do the Ambassador Theatre Group is a good example. We, this is live theatre. Yeah. But by the way, that in itself is remarkable in a, in a world where media is fast-paced and digital. That is the other end of the spectrum. But we regularly, every day of the week, convene people and I look at the causes that we have uh, increased awareness, whether it's refugee camps in Europe, a program that um, we've run in one of our uh, theaters, uh, which has had high impact, whether it's improving the, uh, and acting on affordability of tickets mm-hmm. so that younger audiences can go and experience right. theater, which is, I think is very important. Uh, affordability of tickets. We're setting aside tickets for every show in in Europe so that we can increase um, audience participation. And by the way, when you go to a theater, that is, it's both a modern and a time-honored version of community. I mean, you literally experience it, unlike all other media, well, except for sports, which we hope we talk about uh, this afternoon, as a group.
1: Well, talk about live entertainment, because that's an area where you see a lot of opportunities. And I was thinking, for the first year, I went to two Broadway shows with my family. I haven't done that in a long time. No, I know. (laughs) But I mean, what is it? And you see that, though, as an investment opportunity going forward, live entertainment.
9: Well, we have uh, 20 Seconds of Background, where we started in media, and it's still one of the three legs on the stool of Providence, it was in distribution. So if you think of media, there is distribution, which is satellite, yeah. cable television, and now telcos, and, and streaming, which probably can't have a conversation without talking about direct-to-consumer. And then we moved into content. And so we're still in both. We're right. still in distribution, which is today mobile and mm-hmm. cable. Um, we were in satellite. And in content. Uh, Content, for us, the white hot center of valuable content is not just TV, and by the way, those definitions really are stretched because you typically don't watch on ATV. Right. It's a tablet. Um, Is sports. Sports is most valuable live, which is interesting because you can't time shift it. The value of a program drops off dramatically when you don't air it at the time it's played. Many of us have tried to go in a cocoon when you couldn't watch right. a, a sport, and you know, i watch it later. Don't tell me later. what happened to the game. Yeah, and yeah. so you don't look at your phone, typically. Right. I don't want to know the score. And even if you succeed in isolating yourself, the experience is not the same. You know that all the fans that you share a passion with already know the answer. Right. And so it's devalued. Right. We love that about sports um, because of its power, its passion, And it's, like, one of the, you know, antidotes to um, piracy because, by the way, just like live theater, you can pirate it, and it's not worth anything.
1: Yeah, yeah.
9: Sports is like that.
0: And so you've invested experientially in really interesting ways. Ironman, you know, something that that we've Mm -hmm. talked a lot about. Diving certification, that's of great interest to Carol Masser, a uh, very good uh, diver. So what's next? How do you continue this investment thesis and experiences?
9: You know, it's... It's unending. Um, there's no such thing as figuring out what's around the corner and then go, you know, I figured that out. And so I'm done. Uh, that's been an unending exercise. Uh, we've been pretty good at that, but you can't stand still. And by the way, You're leaning in. I can't say what I think is right around the corner. We're working on it now. Right. (laughs) Well, you could, but you know, Uh, live is obviously a big part of it. That's no secret. Uh, And I, I think that this notion that uh, media will belong to only the largest companies. Uh, No, what is true and often confused with that is franchise. What it takes to be of scale has increased but there's plenty of room for disruptors because if you ask a CEO of a franchise media company, their leadership will tell you privately that they feel threatened as they have never have been before. Franchises mm-hmm. are fragile.
1: Mm-hmm.
9: And that's good news for folks like us who are starting companies or investing in small companies and need to compete with behemoths. And sometimes it's mutualistic, it works well together. That's been true in content, in distribution for us. It's true even in new media. So it's pretty exciting for us. Our basic thesis is that as networks get better and better, so that's phones, it's tablets, it's our life.
1: That's what you mean by yes. networks. Hmm? That's what
9: you yeah, mean by networks. Yeah, that's what I mean by network. yeah. yeah. So that's how you consume. Used to be a TV in a living room, going back decades, <laughs> but just to make the point. Yeah. And today it's anywhere, doing anything, commuting, at home. Actually, most viewing at home is now on an on a untethered tablet. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, that, in our view, has to raise the value of content that it's easier to access whenever, wherever, it's convenient it's relatively inexpensive. Uh, Content should increase in value in the same way that networks are more valuable. So think of it this way. Netflix will spend $15 billion on original content this year. That's an astounding number. That number was zero. So it's good to be in content creation.
1: Right.
0: So do you invest on the content side or the distribution side or both? Both, both. Heavily weighted toward one or the other or equally?
9: No, it has varied over time. I mean, many years ago, it was exclusively distribution. Today, it's about 50-50. There is, and we've been on both sides of this fence for a long time. And it's very interesting to talk to participants who historically have only been in content creation, not in distribution or vice versa. And of course, the grass is always greener on the other side to a CEO. I really wanna be doing that, not right. just what I'm doing. The truth is that while there are different disciplines, the relationship is mutualistic. Think of a network. Think of a mobile, mm-hmm. which is going from 4G to 5G. It is not worth much just because it's faster It's only worth as much as the value of the content riding on that network. Now, in the beginning, it was just a conversation. It was voice. And then it became data, and then it became then pictures, and then video. But now that it's high def, multiple angle screens, that makes your network more valuable. That's the reason you invest. You're looking for a return on that investment. Right. And so that sounds like a good thing for the network and dependent on content. Content is the same phenomenon from the opposite perspective. Your content, I believe, is worth more the easier, the better, faster, more convenient it is for consumers. It opens, it it, it increases your reachable audience. That has to be a good thing. You learned that lesson with Hulu, right? We learned that lesson in spades in Hulu.
1: That's Jonathan Nelson, the CEO and founder of Providence Equity Partners. Loved getting some time to sit with him. This is someone who doesn't do a lot of interviews, but fascinating to get his perspective on an array of topics like we did.
0: Well, they essentially helped invent the current modern media business. Yeah. So a really insightful conversation there. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Carol Master. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time.
0: And if you can't catch us live our daily podcast. Get that at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com.
1: And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. That is on newsstands now.
0: We'll be back right here next week at the same time.
1: This is Bloomberg.